0: You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org.
1: As most of you likely know or should know, Parkview is an evangelical free church. And today, we are blessed to have the president of the EFCA, Kevin Compline, and his wife, Becky, here with us. As you might expect, Kevin is a very busy man, so we are fortunate that he could be with us, especially in light of a very recent sports injury, which uh, I'll let him say more about. Uh, Hopefully you had a chance to listen to the podcast and hear about the many ways in which God has used the Complines, and if you haven't, uh, jump on the website and do that. It's worth your time. Kevin led REACH Global Missionaries to plant 5,000 churches in sub-Saharan Africa in, in about a 10-year span. He's been used in so many ways and them together. And uh, I know that you will enjoy hearing from Kevin today. I can tell you from personal experience that Kevin is a man of integrity, a man of humility. He's led by the Spirit of God and a fantastic leader. Parkview family, would you join me in welcoming Mr. Pre- uh, Kevin Complant?
0: Well, Parkview family, it is great to be with you. Becky and I have been looking forward to this weekend. And uh, Pastor Mark, thanks for the invitation. It's wonderful to be able to be here. And I want to tell you how much I enjoy, at least as we have begun to work together. Mark serves on our board of directors for the National EFCA. And I have an opportunity to be able now to serve more directly with him. And thanks for saying yes and being willing to be a part of that. And Parkview family, we're so thrilled that you are a part of this association of some 1,600 congregations across the United States with 550 missionaries serving in 40 countries around the world, the opportunity for us to be able to glorify God by multiplying transformational churches among all people. It's the opportunity for us to be able to extend the gospel into communities, to see people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and grow deep in him where we can see churches strengthened and revitalized and planted where they don't exist, all to the glory of God. And It's wonderful to be able to do that together, to be able to celebrate together with you. So thank you so much for your partnership being a part of the Central District here, which is that regional uh, part of the EFCA and the international movement and uh, what God is doing both in the United States and around the world. So thank you. For that, and for your wonderful um, hospitality, I, I would say I, I, you know, I have to follow up on on Pastor Mark's comment. Uh, I'm up here a bit limping and a little different than I had anticipated. Um, you know, uh, Aaron Rodgers and Kirk Cousins, they they um, injured their legs and, by playing in the NFL. I have like a severe calf strain of a calf muscle. From playing cornhole with our staff on Wednesday afternoon. (laughs) Now, I got to tell you, we take cornhole seriously at the national office. I've been told that I'm on the injured reserve list for the EFCA cornhole team, and I can't, the board of directors won't let me play anymore. But it was, it was serious. We, we just had like a 30-minute break Wednesday afternoon. I'm outside, and suddenly my leg seized up. Thankfully, it's not an Achilles tear, so I could be with you today. And uh, as long as you don't mind my beautiful, stylish boot I have to wear, I'm thrilled to be with you and to be able to open God's Word for you. Well, you know, when I think about how our world has changed in the four decades that I've been involved in ministry, in those days since I was a young pastor, I, I look back to the time that Becky and I served in Winona, Minnesota, We're in this university town on the Mississippi River. In those days, about 90% of the city could tell you what local church congregation they were a part of. They could tell you what parish they were a part of. 60% of them were Roman Catholic, and about 30% were Lutheran, and they knew. Well, today those numbers are in free fall across America as we see so many people, in a sense, walking away from maybe some of their historic family roots within the church, and we see an incredible secularization of America spreading rapidly. So, the question for us is simply this, how do we reach an increasingly secularized America with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you pray with me? We're going to ask God to show us from His Word. Father, I pray now that you would open your word to us. I pray, Lord, that we would hear from the very heart of God for us. Give us your, your eyes to see the world around us, and give us the clarity by your word and your spirit to see ourselves. And so we set apart this time, Spirit of God, be our teacher. Your word is the truth. We need it. We know we do. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I study the Scriptures, I, I look for things that surprise me, things that jump out of the text. And as I am reading, was reading through the book of Romans, and you get to Romans chapter 1, verses 14 to 17, and in that passage, Paul talks about where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. And he says, the just will live by faith. And after that great, those great statements, I assumed that the Apostle Paul would have moved into a powerful description of what life looks like, lived in the transforming power of the gospel, where faith leads to salvation and the empowerment to vibrantly live the Christian life. However, he changes course and goes into something quite different. I'd ask you to take your Bibles if you have one and turn with me or open your device and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at the latter part of chapter 1 and the first verse or two of chapter 2 today. And when we look at Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul begins simply by saying this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's how he starts it. Now, when we read in other places in Scripture about God's wrath being visited on unbelievers, and ungodly people at the end of the age. But Paul indicates here that there is a significant revealing of the wrath of God now. And a part of the revealing of the wrath of God, in a sense, is the consequence of people getting what they want apart from Him. Well, let's look at verse 18 and its depth. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. John Stott, a British pastor and author, said this a number of years ago. He said, godlessness is the attempt to get rid of God. Uh, But since that is impossible… It is the determination to live as the one had succeeded in doing so. You can't get rid of God, but if you think about it, our world today, they're trying to assume that God doesn't exist and live that way. In fact, when we think about, he goes on in verse 19 to explain what they're suppressing, what truth they're suppressing. Look with me at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God is has shown it to them. In other words, God isn't hiding things from people, and He's not hiding from us. Uh, Rather, God has made it obvious to people that He's here and that He exists. Pastor Mark mentioned that for more than a decade, I invested a lot of my life on the continent of Africa. And I have to tell you, friends, in, in probably 15 years of traveling in the continent of Africa, I never once had to convince an African that the spirit world existed. I never had once to convince them that there was a possibility that God existed. There was a deep sense of understanding of that. But if you look with me back at the text again, look at verse 20. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. You see, God's eternal power His divine nature are seen in the created order. This amazing sense of creation that is all around, it's been all around us as human beings from the very beginning of time until now. And people have been able to see in God's created order His power, His divine nature, whether it's through the powers of storms and earthquakes or whether it's through the intricate beauty of flowers and snowflakes, from the grandeur of mountains, And the Grand Canyon to the incredible strength of an elephant and the amazing miracle of a newborn baby. All around us, God has made it plain through his creation that he exists so that every person is without excuse. Uh, Can I quote John Stott again? I love this little quote. Think about this with me. John Stott says, nobody can plead innocence because nobody complete ignorance. There's a sense God exists. It's all around us. And as we look at the world today, we see more and more people denying the existence of an eternal God or reinventing Him into something that suits their liking or simply ignoring His Word and His will. Now, the Gentile culture of the Apostle Paul's day was no different than the secular culture of our day. God has made it plain both then and now, that He exists. And people are without excuse. Now, he goes on to expand his thinking. Look with me at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, certainly, they didn't know God in the salvific sense of personal, a sense of personal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. That level of revelation comes only through Jesus himself and God's written word to us. But they did know enough about him to know that he existed, And they made the conscious choice to not glorify him, to not honor him, to not give him his rightful place of honor and glory, what he should have received because he's the creator God of everything around us. Nor did they give him thanks for life itself and the blessings that they had received. And so what we find is they turn their backs on God. Keep reading with me. Chapter chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, they thought they had everything figured out. But Paul tells us in reality, they didn't have it figured out. They were fools to exchange the glory of the immortal God for just images of mortal beings. And what a sad exchange it was, exchanging the incredible, immense, beautiful glory of God for idols that they could make with their hands. Now, my friends, lest we wag our fingers at the Gentile Romans of Paul's day, let's take a little look back and take a stock of the idolatry in our own day. For three decades, Becky and I have lived in the heart of Silicon Valley. A place where fortunes are made seemingly overnight. A place where the pace is fast, the demands are intense, the stakes are high. And I remember coming back from my very first trip In Africa. Becky and I had spent 10 days in East Africa. And when we were there, I mean, we saw brokenness. We saw broken roads, broken vehicles, broken buildings. We saw broken people. We saw poverty. We saw spirit worship. We saw idolatry of all kinds and many forms. And we were coming back to San Jose, and I thought, how am I going to process all of this? I've seen all this in Africa, and I'm coming back to this crazy place called Silicon Valley. And then we landed at the airport in San Francisco. And we got in a car. We're on the freeway going home. And it hit me. Because there it was. Beautiful people in beautiful luxury cars driving to their beautiful offices or back to their beautiful homes. And I saw in front of me that the idols of Silicon Valley were all around me. Uh, It reminded me of something I heard when I was a teenager back in the 70s. Yes, those days did exist, by the way, back in the 70s. Francis Schaefer, philosopher and Christian author and teacher, said this, as he was looking forward to what was coming in the Western world, he believed that, the, that society in the days to come would be characterized by the pursuit of two things, personal peace and prosperity, I look back over my entire adult life, and I see most of what I've seen around me in American culture is a pursuit that people have had for personal peace and prosperity. He was right. And it seems to me so many in our world today are pursuing that sense of personal peace and prosperity as the idols of their lives. Now, in, the, in these verses, in this chapter… What you're going to see is there's a pattern here. It's, it's like the Apostle Paul says that people exchanged one thing for something else, and then God gave them up or God gave them over to the consequences of what they really wanted. We're going to, we're going to look at, at sort of two images this morning as we think about Paul walks us through this text. The first is a look out a window. The window on my left, on your right, this is a window that if this were in your home, you could look out and you could see all the things that were going on outside of your home or outside of your office. And it's as though Paul takes us to this window, and we're looking out the window, and we're looking at a spiral staircase, and it's a spiral staircase going down. It's a spiral staircase going down to spiritual brokenness. Look with me at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So, the first step down this spiral staircase to spiritual brokenness is that God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, which led them to sexual sin. It's a pattern we've seen throughout the history and throughout scripture. Whether it's the nation of Israel or the pagan nations around them, idolatry more often than not led to immorality. You see, all throughout the scriptures, idolatry that led to temple prostitution and immorality in all kinds of ways. But then look with me at verse 25 there's the second step down the spiral staircase. So, as a result of exchanging the truth of God for a lie, God gave them over to what He called the shameful lusts, to the acting out of sexual desires that were not in accordance with God's natural created order. Now, we go back and we can see in the book of Genesis in the early days of creation that God created human beings as male and female. And it was said that God said it was good And that he instituted marriage as he brought the woman to the man. And in addition, the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, when he was asked about marriage, made it clear, and I quote, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two of them shall be one flesh. You see, in this passage, Paul makes it clear, women exchange natural sexual relations according to God's created order for unnatural ones. Now, not natural in the sense of what an individual feels internally as right or quote-unquote natural for them, but rather natural in the sense of God's created order of things. He goes on to say that men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another and committing shameless acts with other men and the consequences of that is harmful. Now, what's interesting is Paul doesn't tell us what the consequences are. But he makes it clear that those consequences are there. Now keep reading with me. There's a third step down the spiral staircase to spiritual brokenness. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Now, there's a inter- really interesting wordplay here, and if you were to go back and look at the, the root word of the, of, of the terms that are translated, not, fit, not see fit to acknowledge, that's one word that had to be translated, not see fit to acknowledge in English, and then the second idea of a debased mind, they come out of the same root word. And it's this idea that in the first one, it's, it's to not stand the test. That's the idea, the root of the word. So the first one says that, that these people that, that didn't acknowledge God, they're basically in their hearts saying, God doesn't stand my test, so, I, so I'll just ignore him. And then Paul says, well, God gave them a mind that didn't stand God's test. Because God has his test for what's right or wrong too. Now in the text, we've seen so far three times they've exchanged one thing for something else and three times God gave them over, gave them up to the consequences of what they've wanted. Now I want you to just take and look back at these verses just for a moment, just glance back over them again because I want you to see that there is something that a clear repetition in the passage He consistently uses the words they and them over and over and over again. He uses a third-person pronoun. It would have been a clear message to the primarily Jewish Christians in the church in Rome that he was writing to that Paul was referring to the Gentile Roman citizens in the city around them. It's about them. It's about looking out the window at them and they're going down this spiral staircase to spiritual brokenness, and they're looking at them. But when you think about that descending spiral staircase, it doesn't surprise us that the first step down is a step where idolatry leads to immorality and sexual license, and, and, and where the second step has people rejecting the truth and embracing a lie that God would give them over to shameless lusts and unnatural behavior. So it might be easy for us, like the Jewish Christian readers of this letter when they first read it. It might be easy for us to shake our heads and bemoan the depravity of the world around us and and, and where this depravity, where the first step is idolatry leading to immorality, going against God's plan for for the covenant heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman. And then the next step down would be going against God's plan for heterosexual marriage in homosexuality, going against God's natural order. But what's surprising is where he goes in verse 28. Because friends, we're not at the bottom of the spiral staircase yet. Might be tempted for some to think, oh, we have to be at the bottom now. We're not. Look at verse 28 with me. Verses 28 to 32 as we continue to go down. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And you may look at that and go, disobedient to parents? And that's like the, that's like the bottom of the, of the rung of this ladder. What it is, friends, is this next step down is a step into relational brokenness, that reflects hearts and minds of people who have turned away from God and have rejected the right and righteous truth of God's word that results in attitudes and actions that hurt people and break relationships. So take a moment, look through those 21 vices again. Look at verses 29 and following. There's 21 things in there. And then I want you to reflect back on the things you've seen in our culture in the last three to five years as you read, listen to, or watch the news, as you listen to podcasts or watch YouTube videos, as you look at social media posts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, and the list goes on, how many of these have you seen evidenced in our world around us? And in fact, it actually gets worse. Because look at the last verse of the chapter. He says this, and though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So the final step down this spiral staircase to spiritual brokenness actually is the fact that people not only do them, but they cheerlead others to do them. And I find it fascinating in our day and age the amount of championing of sinful desires and shameful lusts and wicked things that we see people doing in our world all around us. Now, you're sitting back and you're going, wow, are we glad you came to talk to us this morning. This is like a depressing (laughs) picture. I mean, you could have stayed in Minneapolis and not come here. I I, want to just help you to understand, yes, this looks hard, But friends, this is the world where the Lord has called us to take the gospel, and we don't need to be afraid of it. It's a world filled with immoral desires and shameless lusts, a world filled with wickedness, greed, evil, and depravity. Folks, that's God's mission field for us. It's the mission He's given us. It's the same mission Paul and the church in Rome had. And I believe that the reason the Apostle Paul goes into this detailed description of the lostness of the world around us and the brokenness of relationships is not to discourage us, but to remind us that every human being needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everybody. And they're not beyond the reach of the love and the saving message of the good news of the gospel. That's the world he's called us to reach. When I was a young boy growing up in a little um, evangelical free church in far northwestern Minnesota where um, we said we had 10 months of winter and two months of bad sledding. And um, when I was growing up there, the very first scripture verse I ever memorized was the one we sang in the fir- one of the first songs we sang today, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The word world, have you ever thought about what that word means? It does not mean the globe. It does not mean the earth. The word world in John's gospel means people who are lost and broken, who are shaking their fists in God's face. Those are the people Jesus came and died for. And you know what, friends? That's us too. That's us too. So, we're going to take and shift our image here because we've been looking out this window at this spiral staircase going down, the spiral staircase of spiritual brokenness, which really hits the bottom in broken relationships and people hurting other people. And we're going to shift to another image, the image of a mirror. Because in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Paul shifts the imagery for us it's not out there, it's in here. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, "'Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things.'" See, Paul's making it very clear here, friends. That both those who have chosen not to acknowledge him at all and those who have chosen and claimed the right to self righteously judge others are both desperately in need of the good news of the gospel. Now, my friends, We must look out the window at the world around us, not with eyes of haughty self-righteousness, but rather with hearts of humility, recognizing that we only stand right before God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel to salvation to everyone who believes, and that includes us. And it only happens as we take and look in this mirror and get a good view of ourselves as God sees us. It reminds me of of what Jerry Bridges, a leader in the Navigators, and he wrote a lot of very helpful books over time. Jerry Bridges used to say often that he needed to preach the gospel to himself every day. He needed to be reminded of what he'd been saved from. It's probably good advice for all of us, wouldn't you say And I think that's where we need to be. If we're going to extend to the world this profound and powerful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can save and transform the most broken and depraved person, then we must be the ones that take that message to the world with hearts of humility, filled with the love of Christ, acknowledging we come, all of us come to the foot of the cross as helpless broken sinners. And I think, friends, it's time we stop being frustrated that unregenerate people live like unregenerate people. That's kind of who they are. It comes down to the ultimate motivator of why we do what we do. And it, it comes out of God's heart of love for lost and broken people who are so far from Him And He wants to redeem them and bring them back into a relationship with Him because He loved them so much. But you know, over the last three or four years, believers have said, written, and posted things about other believers that I can only think has to have made the heart of God weep. Too too often we've been tempted to put people in categories to call them something so we could marginalize them and discard them. Now, now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we go soft on truth. I'm not saying that we go soft on what's right. Hopefully you've heard me say that today. What I am saying is Paul said it when he wrote In his epistles, we must speak the truth in love. We need to be the ones that are speaking God's truth, but it's how we speak it that makes a difference. When I was a young pastor serving in Winona, Southeast Minnesota, Dean Johnson was our district superintendent. Dean had been the pastor of the church in Ames, Iowa, for years, came up to be the district superintendent, and I was a young—I was young, as in my early 30s. And Dean said, "Hey, I've got some issues with local churches, and would you come along with me? We have some conflict issues I, we need to we need to address with between pastors and other staff people and their staff, or pastors and leadership teams." And so I would go to him with a—I would go with him to a few of these meetings, and I remember. in the car on our way to one of these meetings, I asked him, I said, so Dean, how do you prepare yourself to go to these? And he said, I pray a prayer that comes out of John chapter 1 verse 14 because I want to act like John described Jesus there. And he went on to say that in Jesus' earthly life, outside of Mary, His mother, there probably was no one who knew the Lord Jesus any better than the Apostle John. And John described Jesus in this way. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And friends, for 35 years, I've made that my prayer. As I step into a difficult situation, whether it's between two people or whether it's organizationally, I pray, Lord, would you make me like you? I want to be full of grace and full of truth. But unfortunately, over the last several years, I'm afraid what the world around us has seen in far too many Christians is more truth-telling than grace-giving, more anger and fear than love and kindness. And we need to speak the truth, but we need to do it graciously and lovingly because, friends, what they need to see is Christ in us, the hope of glory, full of grace. Truth. So the Apostle Paul has walked us to a window, and we've looked out the window and we've seen the spiral staircase down to spiritual brokenness. And he's brought us over to a mirror and held it up in front of us and said, Now look in your own life, look at yourself. Be careful lest you point your finger in judgment at others and ultimately found, be found guilty of doing some of those same things, albeit maybe more subtly and maybe more in your mind than in your actions. Paul's working to show us that everyone from the most broken person in the world to each of us within the church are desperately in need of the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have been given the privilege, and I call it a privilege, friends, we've been given a privilege to be carriers of the good news into a world that is a mess. I mean, it is a mess out there. And in reality, I guess, if we look in here, it's a mess in, it's a mess in here too, but we're, we're saved by the grace of God, right? And we're saved, and we're cleansed, and Jesus has changed us, and our lives are new. So, how do we extend the gospel into a broken, secular world like the one we live in? Can, can I give you two or three ideas of ways that I think might be helpful? The first is we need to see the world, world around us as Jesus does. We need to see them like Jesus saw the world that He was in, helpless and harassed people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And it's time that we stop expecting unregenerate people to act like they're redeemed. They're lost, they're hopeless, they're helpless apart from Christ. And my sense that God has just gripped my heart with is people in the world around us don't need my anger, they need a Savior. And we need to show Jesus to them and believe that he's the one that can change them. And secondly, we need to be reminded how the gospel impacts people's lives. Do we believe what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In a sense, Paul is saying, I'm proud of the gospel, and I don't care what people out there think about it, because I know it changes people. And so, if we see people like Jesus does, and we believe that the power of the gospel can change people like it's changed us, then the third thing we need to think about is we need to understand the role God has called us to play in this mission, I mean, he chose to not use angels to come and tell everybody about his son. He chose to use us. What an amazing privilege. And we need to live godly lives and shine like lights in a dark world because we have been redeemed. In that sense, he's called us to live out so that people might see Christ in us. I, I love what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. He said. And God's people all ought to shout, amen. That's us. But we also need to deeply love the people and courageously share the gospel of grace with them. We need to have, again, the Lord's heart for the people around us. Again, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, listen to what he says. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. And all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ, behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the sense of both privilege we have to share the gospel and urgency to share it with people? Man, life is short, friends. Eternity is forever. And we are not going to reach a secular world if we're angry at them, leading them to think we hate them. And we're not going to reach a secular world around us if we live like them. So we need to live distinct lives that reflect Jesus. And we're not going to reach them unless we care enough about them that we go and tell them and love them and be with them. So what do we do with all this? I think there's two things. One involves the mirror, and one involves the window. Let me start with the mirror. I think first we need to allow the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and shine it in our hearts and ask Him to show us, as the psalmist said, is there any wicked way in me? Lord, what do you want to show me in my life? What do you want me to change? How do you want me to more reflect you? And I think for us in the church, you and me, we must get on our knees with humble hearts of repentance, confessing our sins, seeking forgiveness, rejoicing in the transforming power of the gospel because Paul said in Romans 2, 4, or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I think it's time for the people of God. to let the Word of God and the Spirit of God beat our mirror and be on our knees and humbly repent of any things in our lives we need to lay down before Him. But the second thing, and this is what God's driven so deeply on my heart, everywhere I go I talk about this. Secondly, my friends, we need to purposefully and passionately cry out for, to God for revival and spiritual awakening in our day. Our country and our culture is descending down that spiral staircase to spiritual brokenness faster today than I've ever seen it in my 40 plus years of full-time Christian ministry. And I need to be honest with you, complaining or hiding, wishing that it were not so, or being angry or fearful will not change it. What will change it is the transformation of human hearts through the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ in individual people's lives, and He's called us to bring that message so He can do it. Unless we think He can't do it today, He's done it over and over again in the history of the church. Earlier this year, I was sitting on on an airplane, which… End up spending more time there in the last twenty years of my life than I would have thought. I'm sitting on an airplane, and Becky had told me there's a movie you ought to watch. And I was on a lo- like a four-hour flight, and and it's a movie called The Jesus Revolution. And it's the story of the Jesus People movement back in the in the you know late '60s '70s in Southern California. People like Chuck Smith and Greg Laurie, and all that came out of that. And I watch as I watched this movie, and I watched, I watched these. Young hippie type folks is what we called them back in those days. I watched them with a deep need and hunger for something and meaning in their lives. And I watched this movie as they came to faith in Jesus. And I saw people's lives being changed and transformed. And it wasn't all easy. It was hard. There, was, there were hiccups along the way. And then toward the end of the movie, I'm sitting in this dark uh, airplane cabin watching the movie. Toward the end of the movie, there's a shot of explo 72 which was this huge gathering of primarily young adults, mostly Christian young adults together at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. And it was like a flashpoint moment for what God were to do across the United States in many ways. And I sat there in that plane and I cried like a baby. I was weeping as I watched that because one of my two best friends from high school was in that stadium. And he came home a changed young man And it's out of what he shared with us that God began to work in the youth group within my home church. And we saw kids come to Christ and we saw out of the youth group in my little church in a small town in northern Minnesota, God move, so that three of us became pastors and three became missionaries and two mission organizations, one in Asia and one in Europe were started by kids I went to high school with. A seminary prophet, Denver Seminary, was one of my good friends. There were elders and leaders in churches that came out of this little church because God reached down in in a moment of spiritual revival and awakening in a little out-of-the-way town in northwest Minnesota, and I believe he can do it again today. And I just keep crying out to him, Lord, please, you've done it before, would you do it again? Would you join me in crying out to God and asking Him to do something only He can do? And that is to change the hearts of people. You see, we have an incredible history in the FCA of ordinary people being used by God to do extraordinary things. A little woman named Ellen Modine, who was actually the first missionary that we ever sent, She, she went to Salt Lake City to work among Swedish Mormons. And she came back to Minneapolis, St. Paul, started a ministry among women who were caught in the saloon I don't know how old this is, in the saloon culture of that time. And she moved in and and, and, and gathered together believers in Minneapolis, St. Paul, so that the red light district in the city of Minneapolis was obliterated and it was gone. Just a simple little lady named Ellen Modine. Hans von Quallen, the very first missionary we sent overseas, was studying Bible school in Chicago. We met two Chinese men who had just immigrated from mainland China, and he led them to Christ, and they started telling him about their homeland, and he felt such a move in his heart that he and his two Chinese friends went back to China. He invested his life there, and today the largest free church in the world is in Hong Kong. There's a vibrant move of God in Hong Kong and into China. Or a guy named Will Norton. Will, Will, Will is more known in the United States for Christian higher education. He was the president of our college and university for a time. He was at Wheaton College and a number of other schools. Will and his wife, Colleen, were some of our early missionaries to Congo. He and his wife got on a cargo ship loaded with high-octane aviation fuel in the early 1940s and sailed through the German U-boat lines to get to Africa. I met him when he was 100 years old, and I said, Will, that sounds a little dangerous that you and your wife and little little baby would get on a boat like that. And you know what he told me? He said, Kevin, what was I going to do? If somebody didn't go and tell those people about Jesus, they would never hear. I had to go. My friends, may our hearts be like Jesus' heart. I was described so well in Matthew's gospel when Jesus says, come to me all you are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest for I'm gentle and lowly of heart. I'm going to quote Dane Ortland in his book Gentle and Lowly when he says this. Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake everywhere we go the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. I believe when we begin to engage the world around us with the humble heart of Jesus, seeing people through his eyes, exhibiting grace and truth along with the courage to believe that the gospel is the power of God to salvation and transformation to anyone who believes, then and only then will we take the gospel to an antagonistic and secular world, and we'll see God do some things that will amaze us. May He do it to His glory. May He do it in Iowa City, and may He start in Parkview Church to His glory. Lord Jesus, I thank you for my friends here. What an incredible opportunity you've given them in this place, an influential city, for them to be the carriers of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may people see in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory and do it in a way that would be it gets so clear. It's not because we're smart and powerful and have great ideas, but may you do it in a way that would show us it is by the work of your spirit to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.